0: We have a long way to go in the event industry and uh, I think there's going to be a few victims of COVID within our industry just as there is throughout hospitality. Um, uh, So let's just watch this space and see what the future holds.
1: No one would dispute that COVID has been the biggest challenge that's ever faced our hospitality industry but those who've been in the industry for decades have weathered many storms I wanted to get the perspective of someone who's run different types of food businesses and who has wide and deep experience across cuisines, locations, and venue types. Adam Satiksai owns Khan Hospitality Services, which runs a number of venues in Victoria. He's recently opened Stella's Kitchen on the edge of Melbourne at Montague Apple Farm. In the early 1960s, his parents opened what was probably the first Indian restaurant in Australia. There is a lot to talk about. Adam, welcome.
0: Hi, Danny. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and um, yeah, I'm really keen to get your perspective. It's it, it's it's a funny week because this is the week that you know, if we look back a year ago, everything was shutting down. Uh, tell us what the year's been like for you.
0: Well, needless to say, it's been a roller coaster—one uh, both at a business level and one at, uh, another one at a personal. Uh, an emotional level. Um, I think anyone in our industry has uh, had a lot to deal with this year. But um, I, I, I say to people that my analogy is, is we've been living with uh, like we're playing Russian roulette. Um, you know, with a one bullet in the barrel, and uh, you you just don't know what the next move's going to be, depending on what the government decides on the day. So it, it's been it's been a roller coaster, but we've done okay.
1: So tell us about the, the, um, your portfolio at the moment. What, what are you guys up to at Carnes?
0: Well, we currently um, operate Stella's Kitchen, uh, which is at uh, the Montague Orchard in Listerfield, which has been a, a great addition to what we do, and that's modern Australian cuisine. We also have venues in Pakenham and Warrigal, which are primarily function venues, and they do uh, events for anything from 500 to the 10 to 20,000 people. Um, so there are two venues in Warrigal and one in Pakenham. Pakenham has a cafe attached to it as well, which is by a lake and does quite well
1: yeah funny that you mentioned events, well, not funny, but I think as we're recording this, there is a march on the steps of Parliament House in Victoria by people in the events industry asking for consideration, wondering why there can be fifty thousand people at the MCG, but it's still um, yeah, it's still quite difficult to run an event. Um, w- I mean events obviously hit super hard. What's it been like for you?
0: Oh, absolutely. That, that's what's actually caused us the most stress, the um, inability to, to hold events, conduct events, even take bookings um, was so hard. That's slowly changing now, but I remember this time last year we were gearing up for Farm World, which is a major event, has 40,000 people over three days at Lardner Park, and we had just purchased uh, stock for that event <laughs> Well, quite a lot of it, and um, and only to be told a few days prior, we can't. The event will not go ahead. So here we are this year, and we're excited that the event's happening again. But as I say, you just don't know what could happen tomorrow. That's the uh, emotional tormo- turmoil that we, we go through. But I, I think the event industry slowly opening up, uh, talking to um, – You know, other industry people, my brothers that are in the industry, they're slowly um, getting uh, bookings again. Smaller bookings, not large events, that's not happening. But at least it's uh, allowing the wheels to turn in their business and they're getting a sense of positivity, uh, which is helping them immensely. But we have a long way to go in the event industry and uh, I think there's going to be a few victims of COVID within our industry, just as there is throughout hospitality. Um, uh, so let's just watch this space and see what the future holds.
1: It's uh, the, your events, accommodation, tourism and some hospitality operators have asked for the government to continue supports such as JobKeeper because those industries are unable to trade as normal. It's just a very different landscape to what it was a year ago. What's wh- What's your view on that?
0: Oh, look, I can definitely see a need within the the tourism industry and perhaps the um, event side of uh, our industry. Um, You know, restaurants are able to open and get back to business. Um, JobKeeper was very important in the early days and right up till now has been a big part of our survival. But that being said, moving forward, uh, in a way, uh, it's a a noose around our neck as well uh, for for a number of reasons. And uh, and as all our industry are talking at the moment about the inability to find staff uh, because of those that are on um, JobKeeper, that is primarily one of our biggest problems um, at the moment. And from a personal level, I just think a lot of our industry has been operating at a, on a false economy uh, because of uh, JobKeeper. So we need to get on with it.
1: Tell me more about that. What, where do you think the, the falsities lie?
0: Well, look, I mean, I mean, suffice to say there would have been a, a large number of our industry that actually did quite well with JobKeeper, but uh, the ones that are bigger and busier, um, you know, paid a price. JobKeeper really, you know, just sustained the staff, but, um, uh, you know, their business models weren't sustainable. Um, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I know of a few industry people that literally closed doors because of JobKeeper with the intentions of reopening. Um, but you know, they became irrelevant in our industry, um, which concerned me a lot uh, because my view was stay open, and even if you sold a coffee, you sold a coffee. You know, JobKeeper was a bonus, um, but a lot of our industry decided to just. Uh, you know, enjoy the benefits of JobKeeper, which is fine. Um, you know, it was a hard time, but, um, you know, we need to get on with it um, and, and and face the true realities of, you know, our, our profit and loss and so on.
1: Right. I mean, I guess people are talking about these so-called zombie businesses that, you know, they're only propped up um, by the government support and, you it is. It's not a sustainable business um, when that's that's taken away. Are these the, these are the kind of businesses that you're talking about. That these Absolutely. ones that can't stand on their own two feet.
0: Absolutely. Look, I, I saw this in the '80s when we had the the recession. We had to have, um, and they introduced new laws, FBTs, so lunches were no longer tax deductible, and so on. The, the restaurant industry went through an absolute hiding at that time. And uh, what it did was that the, the stronger people in the hospitality industry survived, and and uh, the less strong uh, crumbled. So there was at that time a bit of a cleaning up of our industry. And I remember the days of Chapel Street, where even to enter a shop at that period, you paid key money. People were. Keen to open up food businesses there, and and then along came the eighties, and they were all shut down. They were all pretty much destroyed, except for the handful of the you know long term players. They they survived, and those that had on an economic level put themselves on a good footing uh, to deal with that, or took immediate action too as well. So um, this this time it's a little bit different. Um, yeah.
1: So can you draw any other parallels between, like, like you know, the recession that we had to have or um, the end of um, fringe benefits tax, any of those, can you, um, yeah, draw any other parallels between other crises that you've seen in the industry and this one?
0: Look, the one thing about our industry is that we're, we're – we're- we, we move, we're a very fluid industry and really it could take a, a federal election and we know that impacts our business when elections happen. Weather can impact us. If we have um, you know, unseasonal poor weather, it impacts us. So you know, there are many, many different uh, variations in our industry, but I, I suppose more uh, recently in uh, sort of the new players uh, of our industry would have experienced the global economy crash uh what five years ago four or five years ago that impacted us to to a level as well there was a level of uncertainty um uh, so people spent less went out less um but you know i can't think of any other uh uh moments in re- recent history that had greater effects on our industry than the recession we had to have and uh Uh, covid
1: Mm, they're the big ones aren't they um Uh,
0: do
1: you do you feel like you've had there there are lessons that you learnt in the 80s that you're you're still carrying with you today
0: oh absolutely when this happened i uh, locked down within the first day started uh, looking at ways to redevelop our business and renew our business um what we did in the 80s, we did the opposite to what everyone did. We actually invested in our business. Uh, we renovated our business. Uh, we knew at some point it had to become good. Uh, and mind you, we've been in the game since the 60s. So, um, so we're talking, you know, like 80s at the time. Uh, so we had uh, – you know, we'd seen the industry had changed, you know, over a good 20-year period. And probably that 70s and 80s was the greatest change our industry ever saw. Um, so we were able to adapt fairly rapidly. Um, we, we managed to keep all our staff on because um, we geared up for it. Uh, but also, you know, I always think that, you know, hospitality people need uh, a financial buffer, Um to deal with such situations. One thing we know in our experiences, is it could happen and, uh, and, and it will happen again. Um, uh, it, it'll be for some other reason, but it'll happen in our industry again. Hopefully not to the extent COVID has hit us, but when there's global crashes or economic influences on our industry, you know it's a matter of time before you do get better. Um, the hard-hitting thing about COVID, you, you, none of us really knew what was going on, um, and government, especially our state government, didn't do a lot to to inform us um, or let us know uh, what their next step was. And as I say, that's that bullet in the barrel. You could wake up in the morning and find there's two cases, and and you know they decide sh- you know shut shut your doors, um, like they did pre Valentine's Day. Um, it could happen, and that's the frightening thing about this time. Um, but uh, nonetheless, you know, given our experience, we've positioned ourselves to even deal with that. You know. Um, if that should occur.
1: I mean, so many hospitality businesses, you know, I guess, you know, small businesses, people get very buried in their businesses and they really, you know, margins are tight and they, they find it very difficult to create those financial buffers. What are some things, you know, from your experience that you can share that have allowed you to do that or, or what's the mindset that you that you take to work each day that, um, that helps you prioritise that buffer?
0: Um, it's a tough question. How do you prioritize that buffer? Um, The one thing I do say about our industry is that the most consistent thing about our industry is the inconsistencies. (laughs) There's nothing consistent about our business and you can bank on that. And that goes as far as saying, you know, today we served X amount of people, but the next day you serve different personalities, different people, different staff. It's a very dynamic, moving industry. And that's the same to be said about the conditions in which we're working. Uh, You know, one, we're very competitive. Uh, We've become an incredibly competitive industry. Um, You know, the days of the 80s where everybody knew each other well um, and helped each other uh, wherever possible, it's it's not the same today. It's a very competitive, brutal industry, which is a shame in some respect. Um, But um, to answer your question... Yes, it's 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 a tough game, and yes, we all struggle to get those margins, you know, up, our labour costs down, but uh, that's all we can do. You know, some of the things we can control when we set up these businesses is not, you know, don't go into high rental locations, um, you know, understand your demographics and and the need of those demographics in the environment you're in. It's just so important, um, and you know, for us. It, it, you know, this meant survival for us so things changed uh, we had to change our menus we had to change our mindset to to cater for that change in our demographics needs uh, but yes I know it's a tough thing to say have a financial buffer in our game because we are all working in our industry and and for many of our industry people it's hand to mouth um, uh, so it, it, it's it's a tough question to answer Danny some of us are more fortunate than others in the game Um, but we all have that that passion and 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 the hope that we can claw ourselves out of that position of weakness and um, you know grow uh, into a bigger and stronger business.
1: Mm. Well one thing that you did do through um, 2020 was continue to develop Stella's Kitchen at at, um, the Montague Orchards and I think that's a really interesting business in that it it does, it's a business that has these different income streams or these different reasons for people to attend. So there's an apple picking experience, there's a farm gate store there, it's right next door to a national park where people can go cycling or horse riding. Um, Is that sort of multiple draw uh, type of venue where you think, you know, you can sort of create those buffers where there's more than one reason for people to visit a place?
0: Absolutely, um, and that was something we we discussed and debated uh, many times over where to place our menu, and how best we cater for the uh, different demographics um, of people using a park next door that wants hot chips and a panini, to those dining in that wants a you know a a, a well made chef's meal. Um, so it was a challenge for us, but I also knew that that would position us um, more widely to a, a very diverse demographics, but also put us in a position to deal with the current conditions that we're all working in. Um, so um, you know, it's up to us how we manage that. Um, you know, properly. Uh, we know our, our Saturdays and Sundays are busy, so. We're keen to get people to book that will sit down and have, you know, uh, two courses for lunch or three courses or a bottle of wine and, and we get a better spend. Um, uh, so we'll manage our business accordingly as opposed to the week where you have families, park users and so on that are going for walks that just, you know, want that coffee or, or- or, or scones. Um, so, you know, we manage that very tightly because at the end of the day, we need to get a certain level of income to, one, pay off the investment and uh, hopefully return some money and keep our staff employed. But I think there's, that's one of the key elements of our business is our industry understanding the need um, to be able to cater um, for a wider section than we used to.
1: Mm. But it's hard to get those messages across to customers that, um, you know, no, this isn't the time for you to just have a scone and a and a cup of tea. This is the time for you to settle in and 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 spend more. Like, how do you how do you send those signals to customers?
0: Well, I hope they're not listening, but I, you know, because I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you the secrets. You know, we ask them at the door: Are you here for a coffee? <laughs> and a snack or would you like to you know like particularly because we get a lot of bookings and then we get a lot of walk-ins so uh the walk-ins we can manage the bookings are harder we can't ask that question obviously over the phone but uh, it's most certainly with the walk-ins um we ask that question and uh from there we determine whether we have a table available or not um because we'd rather use that table for a a higher your client to be blunt um, and we also have an outdoor area which we uh, you know suggest that they go to the outdoor serving and enjoy the dining facilities uh, in the takeaway section um, uh, but you know one of the key elements of any food industry is you know trying to get your highest average spend and um, you know we can't have the place full of people having a cup of coffee um, there's no money in that yeah. So yeah
1: it's, oh. it's a really interesting one because, you know, you, I guess you sort of hope that people have become a, a little bit more understanding of the, you know, the difficult conditions that hospitality businesses operate under. But then again, it is hospitality and, you know, you're always trying to say yes to your customers. Um, so I guess you hope that they read the signals or, or meet you halfway or?
0: They don't. <laughs> I, I, I haven't found um, any real let up on that front. I think customers' expectations are pretty much the same as pre-COVID. During COVID, it was different. Uh, People were very uh, accepting and forgiving and understanding, which was wonderful. But I think, you know, people that weren't into the industry that were locked up at home, you know, rightly say, we want to go out and enjoy our afternoon. Um, And it's incumbent on us to provide the best we can. But we have to look after our own needs and as well along the way. And and I I don't know whether people are um, as understanding as we'd like them to be when it comes to that. Um, We had this discussion uh, only last week with group bookings. Um, You know, know, they take up a lot of space and we need the space because we need to turn over tables and so on. And, uh, and we've decided just to bring a set menus for anything over 12 uh, people so that we um, can commit them to spending a, a certain dollar. Uh, uh, otherwise, we can use those tables uh, better, uh, uh, better, you know, for our financial gain and, and better for the customer too, mind you, yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, Adam, I'd love you to talk about staff. I mean, you mentioned that it's hard to find staff. Everybody's saying that, but I know that you, you know, do have uh, you know you, you do really value your staff, and you've got a lot of sort of you know mentoring type programs. Can you can you talk about your approach to staffing?
0: Absolutely. Look, we're only management. Owners are only as good as their staff. It's it's as simple as that. Um, uh, I'm grateful to all my staff for every day they come in. So within our business, we uh, have for many years, we've employed people of um, diversity. Um, we've employed people of um, uh, through the disability services and so on. Um, so I'm really proud of that. And I'm proud that my staff embrace that um, and and look after those that are in need within our staff. So that's a big part of what we do. Um we also encourage people new to the industry to come. I, I, I don't think that our industry uh, is doing enough on that front. Uh, we should be encouraging new inexperienced people into our game and we need to invest time in them uh, to train them. Um, we've come up, I mean, we've been so lucky. We, 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 we've got some beautiful kids that started with us and they're the best hospitality people I've ever seen. Um, they've learned. They've, they've taken it in. Uh, they don't come in with bad habits. Uh, they've got fresh ideas. It's fresh eyes. Um, and it's an absolute treat. We as an industry need to do more on that front, You know, I believe, because there's great people out there. Um, it's hard now to find uh, long-term industry players. It's not what it used to be again. Uh, in the eighties and nineties, where people uh, chose uh, our industry as a career, uh, we, as we all know, we're a very transient industry. You know, we we have people come and go, um, and we need to curtail that, uh, one way or another. So, my way to approach that is one to, to um, pay them better. Um, which I know is a bit of pill to pay for a lot of restaurateurs, because, as you say, we're struggling on those margins. But, you know, I, I find I, I've managed to keep a very strong and stable staff um, uh, doing that. And they're long, um, for 10-plus years. Um, so, um, you know, during COVID, they, they stuck by my side because uh, I stick by theirs. Um and uh, they, they, they love the opportunity, my older staff, to, to train up these young people. Uh, it's pretty much like a family. Um, so um, I make it a point to visit as many sites as I can in a day and to speak to each staff member individually. How are you? How are your family? How it's going? Um, to give them that sense of uh, ownership and belonging. Look, it's a tough gig and – You know, front of house is tough, kitchen's tough. There's no real easy part of our industry. So I think as an industry, we've just got to be a little more nurturing to the people that work within it. Um,
1: I mean, you have basically grown up in the industry and and do have a a – a great deal of perspective on how things have changed. I mean, you've, you've mentioned that there was a lot more, I guess, collegial feeling in the, uh, in the, your early days and that now it's a little bit more brutal and competitive. But I think to a large degree, I mean, that's got to be a lot just to do with the scale of the industry. There are just so many, Melbourne, Victoria, I mean, all our cities are so much bigger than they were and there are just so many more restaurants like in just like um, straight terms, but also so many more per capita
0: Oh, absolutely, um, and, and no doubt. But I, you know, I would say that we're almost oversupplied. You know, like we, I mean, I look at some areas and I think, God, how can these all these restaurants survive in such a small strip? Um, and and I, I just think those people do it to themselves. Um, uh, but yes, the dynamics have changed, most certainly changed. Uh, uh, there are many good things that have come out of of these changes, but equally, I think there are a lot of bad things that have come out of it. Mm. Well, uh, I think
1: you know, most people, I think, would agree with you that there is has been an oversupply of restaurants, and that some some type of correction was on the way, regardless of COVID. Um, do you think that you know with this? With these zombie businesses that we've talked about and and the end of many um, streams of government support that there's going to be an avalanche of closures?
0: I honestly believe that. I've been saying that for six months, seven months. Um, I believe that our industry is not out of the woods. Um, I think when JobKeeper um, finishes and that stream of money finishes and some of those uh, hospitality people that chose to be zombie traders... Um, will feel the brunt of it. Um, uh, I have no doubt about it. And look, just a quick Google search, of, you know, restaurants for lease. Um, I'm outstanding how many restaurants there are for lease, fully equipped. And, you know, you can get them for nothing. And and, and my heart goes out to those people. That was somebody's dreams. Um, but... You know, uh, some of them are true victims to our industry, and and quite honestly, some of them probably needed to move out of our industry um, to be brutal about it. Um, But yes, I think there's uh, a lot more uh, to happen within our industry um, uh, that is not going to be nice for a lot of people.
1: Mm. Um, Adam, I love a bit of restaurant nostalgia and I would love you just to take us back to the days when your um, ma- uh, father and mother opened Taj Mahal in Chapel Street, Windsor, back in the early 1960s. Can you just paint a little bit of a picture of the that the restaurant scene in those days?
0: Oh, well, uh, I'll first tell you about the restaurant a little bit. I grew up to uh, Jumping Jack Flash being played... Uh, by the sitter uh, through a reel-to-reel sound system, you know. Oh you know, my god, I love thing. it! <laughs> yeah, and you know, we had the laminated tabletops, and you know, my mother would uh, come out in a kaftan, and 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 you know, it was a very different industry back then. You know, people smoking in restaurants and. Uh, it was very simple food. We had our Aussie meal section, which I often wonder how the hell did my mum know how to cook an Aussie meal? But, you know, fish fingers wasn't that hard. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but having an Indian restaurant in Melbourne back then was quite radical. Uh, so much so that, you know, I remember our garden being f- filled with herbs because we couldn't buy it. I remember staying in a grease grocer and my father trying to explain to the man what coriander was. Um, You know, we've come a long, long way, um, you know, from all levels of our industry. Um, You know, I can remember, I can go through every decade and tell you what meat sold the best and what wine sold. I mean, who would have thought there was a time when we, you know, people loved Benin Moselle. You know, it was one of the Primo wines, a Matus Rosé. You know, today we've just got so much more mature and better. Oh, my God, when cask wine came out, that was – I remember reconfiguring our bar to to manage cask wine and us having to search for carafes, you know, where you you buy them from. Um, (laughs) Takeaway containers didn't so much exist. People used to bring their old containers to the restaurant or their pots and, you know, and we'd put the food in their container or pot, um, you know, so they could take it home. You know, we've come a long, long way, um, you know, and things have changed. You know, Chapel Street was, Chapel Street-Windsor back then uh, in, in the 60s was the, the most happening place and South Yarra was all industrial. But, of course, that all flipped um, right through the 80s and 90s where Windsor became sort of the lower end and South Yarra became the busier end and now we're seeing that flip again over to to Windsor and and that's what I mean our our industry we always revert back to where we're at somehow there's like a big you know circle uh, that we travel but you know I I grew up with uh, the likes of Shirley Bassey coming into a lot of the people listening wouldn't even know her um, uh, would come into the restaurant who was an icon and go and have to use the uh, one toilet we had in the venue, which was outdoors, you know, and she was a very elegant woman, uh, iconic. Um, uh, so, you know, and I can go through a list of celebrities that over the years we looked after. So literally I was born, you know, crawling on the floors of restaurants and subsequently some of my kids have actually been born in the restaurant. So we go a long, long, long way back. But of course, my, my my memories, perhaps in the eighties, was a very different area where you had restaurants like Glow Glow's Fannies, Two Faces, uh, Marquetti's, Lantern, um, uh, Stephanie's, uh, Mietros. Um,
1: yeah, so real, really glamorous restaurants and um, really, yeah, real places to be in Melbourne at the time. Yeah,
0: they were, and, and it's just, it's unfortunate that that. Um, level of dining experiences somewhat died in, um, in our industry now uh, in those days people would sit and do three courses uh, and enjoy the evening uh, but of course that doesn't so much exist today well not in many places anyway and where have all those restaurateurs gone they've all gone you know they were iconic they were all iconic uh, and they've all gone um so
1: I think some of the, some of the things that I think of with those restaurants and not that I was, um, not that I went, really went to them, went to Stephanie's and Mietta's, I think, but, um, didn't, didn't have the privilege of going to the others. But one thing that, um, makes me sad is that you think about the skills of the service staff, um, and just that, you know, filleting fish at tables and and flombaying like some of the some of that restaurant theatre that we don't really see much anymore.
0: I, I look uh, when I tell my kids I used to waiter in a dinner jacket, a bow tie, and a cummerbund. Um, they look at me and scratch their head. Imagine if I did that today. People think I was mad. <laughs> but um, you know, we, uh, you had to do an apprenticeship for waitering back then.
1: Really?
0: oh, yeah, and if my memory serves me right, it was three years or four years an apprenticeship. Wow. And, uh, we were taught tableside cooking, uh, brigade service, silver service, cocktail making, everything um, and was considered an art.
1: Tell me tell me something that you learned about silver service like um, what, what was something that you were really good at?
0: I was never good at it.
1: Um, <laughs> what were some people good at? <laughs>
0: um, in terms of that level of service?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I always enjoyed being the maitre d', um, you know, which is not a term used today either, uh, Where you know, which was to, to go and greet people, speak to them, upsell them. You know, I'd bring out the trolley with the liqueurs and upsell them for a liqueur or a port or a cognac or whatever. Uh, I very much enjoyed that. Um, The silver service aspect and and, and brigade service, which probably very few people have seen today. um, Well, explain
1: what that is.
0: Well, where you have almost a group of marching waiters, waitresses, that would be in a brigade of 10, depending on the size of the event. Uh, I remember doing brigade service with white gloves and you would uh, literally – In one line, uh, march into the kitchen. Each one of you would grab one plate. You would march out together, uh, back to back. Uh, All stand behind your prospective client and uh, like a well-choreographed dance, you would put that dish in front of the customer and then place it down on the table all all together. So it it was huge theatre. And the same method would be used for clearing tables. Uh, You would march out, circle the table, Pick up their plate, march off, uh, and so on. So, um, but those, you're probably thinking, what the hell am I talking about? Because a lot of people haven't seen it, but it was a big part of the game back then. Um, uh, So it doesn't even exist today.
1: Yeah, I remember going to a a three Michelin star restaurant in Paris, and um, I was dining by myself um, at Le Maurice. just opposite the Louvre and, you know, I just wanted to have that three-star benchmark experience for myself so I knew what all the fuss was about. And I remember someone, you know, like three waiters approaching me solo at the table uh, with this... Uh, you know, a p- plate with this enormous silver cloche over the top, and it was that where one person, t- one person, sort of presented the plate; the other one took off the cloche, and I don't even remember what the third person did, but I'm sure they had a very important job. Yeah,
0: that's brigade service. But look at you—you you remembered it, you know? So.
1: Oh yeah, it was stunning. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, uh, but look—I mean, we've at a financial level cannot provide that, you know. Um, I, I, I'm not brigade service, absolutely not. Um, but, you know, is there room to provide silver service and, and bring back that, that theatre? I think there is, you know. Um, you know, mixing drinks at tables, it, it's it's not that hard. But, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, what, what market out there uh, or where you'd set up something like that. I mean, you wouldn't – in earlier times, the city would have been the place to set that up, but not today. And and I don't think in the near future is the city to do it. Um uh, so, I'm not sure whether there's a place anymore for, for a, in our industry at a financial level for that to happen anymore. But do I miss that level of service? Absolutely. Um, uh, do I miss the theatre of it? Yes. The professional professionalism of it? Yes. Um, you know, you went to work feeling like proud that you had this ability uh, and this talent, but it just doesn't happen.
1: I think you definitely lose something. I mean, I think it's always enjoyable to be in the be in the presence of someone who's excellent at what they do, and they display a level of expertise that just you know just, that demonstrates the training and the commitment and the pride in those tasks. And it doesn't matter whether it's you know someone making you know char kway teow on the street in Penang, or it's someone shining shoes, or it's you know it's someone changing tires on a Formula One car. Like I think any time that you see incredible skills displayed I think it raises everybody up as you know as humans really it's like look what we can do and we can all be good at we can all be good at our own different things I think it's I think it is really special and I think we do lose something without that but at the same time you can see why we don't have it I mean we're just all like attacking you know one lamb shoulder on a table that's you know we're to share between us and that has its pleasures as well um so that it would be great if there was space for the kind of dining that you're talking about alongside everything else.
0: I would love uh, to do something like that just for fun, really, just to, to bring it back. And I've always said to my wife I'd love to open up an 80s restaurant again because I think it would have it would be a great experience for people. Um, you know, I was asking my daughter, she she loves retro and recycling clothes and whatever. And I said, Darling, what's, what's, um, uh, what do they call it? Not retro, um, vintage, vintage. And I said, Is it 60s, 50s? She said, No, Dad, the 90s. You're right. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> 90s, you know, um, uh, but so I thought, bring back the 80s food business here. I mean, it'll blow the young people's minds out, it'll, and it'll bring a lot of, uh, reminiscing to those that enjoyed that time. But who knows, I may do it at some point. I I like uh, doing different things within our industry. In our industry, we've had Moroccan, Italian, Indian, modern Australian, you know, under our banner. We've had all kinds of restaurants. But, uh, you know, I I enjoy giving those new ideas a good bash, Um, So, which I'll continue to do. That 80s restaurant may be one day happening. (laughs)
1: Do it, Adam. I'm going to be there. A little bit of Um, woolly
0: on glacies in the background or something, you know, like. Yeah,
1: yeah, love it. There's got to be a place for it. Um, Adam, it's been so great to have a catch-up and um, thank you so much for giving us your perspective and your wisdom from decades of experience. Um, I think it's going to be, yeah, really inspiring and useful to a lot of people. So thanks for your time.
0: And very kind of you to invite me on, Danny. Thank you very much. All the best.
1: Absolute pleasure. Take care. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirty linen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.
0: This